iTunes presents Meet the Author. Good evening, and uh, welcome to the Apple Store Soho. We're very excited to have you here this evening to attend the latest installment in our Meet the Author series. This guest speaker series gives authors a chance to share their latest works and participate in a discussion with you, the audience. Tonight, we're pleased to have New York author, GQ contributor, and McSweeney's.net humorist, Dan Kennedy, who is here to share stories from his latest book, Rock On, an office power ballad. Special guest Leah Tao of the Moth Literary Series joins us tonight to moderate the event. Before I turn it over to Dan, I want to let everyone know that tonight's event is being recorded for a special Meet the Author podcast that you can download along with Dan's audiobook from the iTunes Store. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dan Kennedy. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Um, so welcome to the, this region of the Apple Store. Um, I have a legal note that I have to read to you before we get started. Um, I should uh, explain to people actually listening to this as a podcast that I've just, uh, I've just come onto the stage area of the Apple Store lowered down on a hydraulic hand, sort of a cloven hoof type of hand. It's lowered me down. I've just walked off of the huge hand onto the stage. There are a bunch of people pressed up in the front right now trying to sort of get at me. Uh, and uh, the, the small, the sort of explosion sound you heard was pyrotechnics that went off in the very front of the stage here at the store in New York City, if you happen to be uh, listening on your computer or iPod, or phone. A note about the names. The names of people in this book have been changed with the exception of pop stars, public figures, and three other people. When I asked my friends Nat and Ben if they wanted me to change their names, they asked to be referred to as Bryce and Suckett, respectively. My own girlfriend asked me to change her name to Cherry Crystal. I did not honor these requests. This is um, sort of a story um, about my first day on the job at Atlantic Records, and uh, it's called I'm Paid to Write Love Notes to Phil Collins. Before we get to the first assignment at the new intense high-profile rock and roll job, let me first admit that there is a delusion I have apparently quietly indulged since age 30, and it's this, that I'm still as cool as I was when I was 17. Inside the heart and head, a sort of suspended animation, a never quite acknowledged freezing of time. Unmonitored, this is how the tragedy of uncles who still get high happens. And now, having taken a full-time job working on the marketing and advertising of bands, somehow this delusion is raging in a very bad way. In the days leading up to this job, I've spent a lot of time laying on my couch, listening to my iPod, and daydreaming about how I'm basically going to be paid to be some sort of intense, uber rock and roll person who is marketing loud, fierce, developing bands that are not yet registering on the radar of the so-called normal run-of-the-mill adults in the mainstream. And those were great, powerful, beautiful moments of delusion, mostly because I had not yet sat down and faced this first big assignment. 
to write an inspirational and congratulatory ad campaign that celebrates 25 years of heartwarming love songs from Phil Collins. I've been told by the uh, ever-changing co-presidents of the company to make sure that I understand my ad campaign is going to be targeted largely to females 40 to 50 plus years of age, and I need to be writing in that voice. The first thing I do is pace around the temporary office they've got me in, wondering how the hell I'm going to do this. I start trying to write some headlines that I think 40 to 50-something-year-old women can relate to. For some reason, they all sound like those Hallmark greeting cards that aren't really for any occasion in particular. Ones that are usually filed under a section called Just Because or Friend. And the headlines are these. Remember the first time that you heard that special voice? Uh, also, uh, here's to the voice that taught us about love. Nice. And also, who was really your first love? In a quiet panic, I cut those headlines and I jumped to adjectives like biggest selling, chart conquering, platinum smash. And then I land on the word hero. Yes, he's a hero. Phil is a hero, I think to myself. Maybe not a hero, but maybe there's a word not quite as big as God, but something less grandiose and somewhere in between. I decide I've got to dig deep. This is my first big assignment, and I'm convinced this is one of those quasi-high-profile New York jobs where if you don't really nail your first assignment, they fire you. So I've got to get into this guy's head. I think to myself, think, man, who is he? What makes him tick? Okay, stop. You're freaking out. Pull it together. Don't do your panic attack thing. Let's consider this for a second. What do we already know about him? We know that he admits he can't hurry love. He has also said that he can't stop love. He is also someone who, even with all of what's going on in the world today, thinks it's not too late for love. And overall, he's got a clear understanding that love is a loving feeling you get when you fall in love against all odds. Plus, he has enough humility to admit that his love doesn't stop even after, and I think this is kind of interesting, the other person has stopped loving him. In his new song that I'm listening to right now, he's literally saying that he can't stop loving you. If you were to look at the Time Warner building from the outside at this moment, you would see a perfect grid of glass and steel divided off into squares. And in each of those offices, somebody is sitting still and confident at a desk or table, except for one little square in the grid where a little man is pacing back and forth, looking up at the ceiling in a black t-shirt and silently asking questions like, what am I doing here? What am I going to do now? And what was I thinking? Serious? Right on. Ah, uh, roadie, huge like that. Every city really stuck with me. Mike's a great guy. This is awesome. I feel like I'm going to play one of those weird guitars that, like, no one quite knows what to call them. Uh, I want to tell you about um, situation. Yes, my boss's dog. I want to tell you about her. Uh, this is called Black Dog. I walk into Valerie's office a few days later, and I need to talk to her about a TV commercial that I'm going to be making for the Jewel album. She's on the phone, but motions for me to stay, indicating that she'll be done in a moment. So while I'm waiting, I'm trying to be polite to Sylvia first. Sylvia is Valerie's dog, and on Thursdays and Fridays, little toy-sized dogs like Sylvia are discreetly snuck into the building in designer handbags. It's a huge status symbol with the female executives here. One should know how to kind of schmooze the little dogs. It's actually an important protocol. 
Everyone here has it down. They have the sweet little voice to talk to the dog with. They know what questions to ask the dog and then how to make conversation with Valerie based on what they talked about with the dog. I have no idea how to talk to tiny executive dogs when they're in the office. I grew up with big, dumb, friendly backyard dogs that made conversation easy. They would get happy when you came home from school. They would look at you with a big smile wagging their tail and they seemed to be saying, throw my tennis ball, throw it, hey, throw my tennis ball, throw it, okay? You would just naturally say something like, what are you doing? Does somebody want their tennis ball thrown? Is that what's going on here, mister? And the dog would get really happy and start barking. But these tiny, smart, urbane dogs with designer stuff make me feel stupid for ever saying anything to them at the office at all. Sylvia's tucked away on her Burberry bed and doesn't seem to be saying anything, let alone wagging her tail because she's glad to see me or asking to have a tennis ball thrown around. I don't really want to kneel down, so I just kind of aim my head toward the general direction of her designer bed and I give talking to her my best shot. Is somebody in her big fancy office today? I ask a little too loudly and matter-of-factly. Out of the corner of my... <laughs> I forget that I have to relive the humility in different towns. That's the beauty part of the book deal. Uh, out of the corner of my eye, I'm pretty sure I see Valerie look up from her important phone call, and I realize the question was strangely and perfectly suited to her. Further confusing matters, I realize I asked the question in my regular voice, not a doggy voice. Jesus, I think to myself, whisper, just do some kind of doggy voice. I step closer to the dog's designer bed in hopes of explaining my behavior a little bit, and this time I whisper the question, is somebody staying in bed all day today? Is that what's happening, hmm? I ask in a very rushed, loud, nervous whisper with a voice that's just slightly higher pitched than my natural voice. I'm stunned to realize that I'm capable of sounding exactly like a middle-aged gay male nurse who's upset with a patient. And still nothing from Sylvia. Either the dog doesn't consider her designer bed a fancy office, and she's pretty certain she's not going to stay in bed all day, or she's just not in the mood for talking to me. Jesus, dog, cut me some slack here. Would it kill you to do something cute that would make me look good in front of my boss? I put on this huge forced smile at this point that seems odd to both me and the dog, judging by the way it's now shaking and quivering. And I decide, apparently, to go back to my normal voice. I try to think of what the hell to say. Through a manic grin, I manage to whisper something like, Well, hello there. Is it a good day? Sylvia looks at me clearly nonplussed, totally silent, and does nothing. I stare at her and think, Fine, dog, you can't say one little bark or run up to me. Two can play that goddamn game, pal. I stand silently staring at it, not saying one word to it waiting for Valerie to get off the phone. It's a tough life for executive dogs around here. Assistants take them for walks when they need to do their business. That is, unless they use the little pad on the floor. Working on the front lines of rock and roll is where I first heard the term pee-pee pad. Those are the little white square quilted pads that some executives bring in with their little dogs, and they put one down in the corner of the office in case the dog needs to go out and the assistant's not around to take them out. Valerie doesn't have one in her office, which I respect, but for one inspired second or two, I think about how cool it would be to get my own PP pad and never have to leave my office. <laughs> Better still, I should make a power play for the top of the company and get my own dog, but it's hard to imagine putting $3,000 on the table for something smaller than my shoe with a better pedigree than mine. 
So instead, I stand waiting for Valerie to get off the phone, and I start daydreaming of what kind of office dog I would get. I think I'd head down to the pound and choose the cagiest, most high-strung, slouching, growling, medium-sized, passed-over, derelict canine of the bunch, something tortured by the dry itch of minor skin disorder to the point of lunacy. I would name him Taco. Taco would be too big to sneak in in a handbag, so I would sneak him into the office in a large duffel bag from the Army-Navy surplus store. I would have to wrestle the writhing duffel bag onto the elevator, occasionally coughing loudly in an attempt to cover up Taco's spasmodic, dry, hoarse growling. And instead of a designer bed, Taco would prefer to sleep on a few flattened-out Kentucky Fried Chicken boxes that he'd licked clean of tasty grease. And when people would try to come into my office, Taco would freak out and start pulling on his chain, growling and barking, and bearing aged gums and teeth like a deranged wolf fighting his way out of an errant bear trap. All the while, I'd be sitting there in my gray slacks and one of my little designer t-shirts or sweaters, saying in a really sensible voice with a smile, Oh, don't worry. You can put something on my desk. He's not going to bite you. He's just getting used to you. Thanks. Uh, I'll uh, quickly let you know that Duran Duran dropped by and it did not go well. Um, it was kind of an odd day at the office. Um, this is a, an abbreviated version of this story called uh, Duran Duran and You Are. It's Monday morning in my tastefully decorated normal adult size office and at the moment there's a pop star standing with a big grin in front of my door. Okay, so maybe Simon Le Bon was a pop star 23 years ago, if you want to get all technical about it. And, okay, fine, so he's not standing in front of my door because he needs to talk to me so much as he's standing there having a snapshot taken with the guy who works in the office next to mine. Which, yes, if you want to be a stickler for details, obviously means that his being all smiles is just a guess on my part, as he and this other guy's backs are turned to me, trapping me in my own office. I sit there thinking that if any of my teenage efforts at being a drummer or guitarist in a world-famous band would have come to fruition, and let's say I would have been the drummer in Duran Duran, this is exactly the view of Simon Le Bon I would have had nightly for my entire time in the spotlight. So for a minute, I just sit there, because in a weird little way, it's like I'm living the dream. After the snapshot, everyone continues along their way, and a couple of bosses walk by, poke their heads into my office, and say, hey, quit working so hard. Come down to the conference room and say hello. <clears throat> and um, I had recently been sort of busted by my friend Josh, and he told me that I could no longer fall back on my shy loser shtick that got me through my 20s when it seemed that I'm doing fine for myself in my 30s. So, you know that sort of gay in the seventh grade sense of the word little voice in your head that goes, yeah, darn it, he's right. I'm going to try for once. If you don't have that voice in your head, just try to remember the voice that convinced you you should try dancing drunk at a wedding or doing karaoke at an office party. I hear that voice and I rock it out of my chair with a goony, doggone it, I'm going to choose life confidence. I walk down to the conference room in my sensible black slacks and leather shoes, and everybody's there already, and sort of staring at me and wondering if I've got the balls to step through the door, so I walk right in with my new confidence. The only problem is I've got a burning sensation on the back of my neck that comes with making kind of a late entrance to something like this. And apparently it's the kind of late entrance that comes with the misunderstanding that maybe I'm the guy that Duran Duran is waiting to meet. 
I ask this because I'm deeply confused when, for no reason that I can discern, Simon Le Bon takes the initiative to get up from his seat at the conference table and extend his hand toward me, which makes some small gland somewhere inside of me shoot into a spasm, resulting in a burning red-hot shot of adrenaline speeding straight into my bloodstream, which triggers a warning in my head to keep it together and not say something stupid. So when we shake hands, I just stick to the very first basic thing that pops into my head, and I say, I'm Dan Kennedy evidently a little too loudly in a creepy way that sounds surprisingly confident, sort of. I start to panic in my head when I hear the voice boom, boom from my upper chest, and I see three other guys in the band turning toward me when they hear it. So I do the only other thing you can do, which is apparently to keep repeating a slight variation of what you just said with each new handshake until you think of a way the hell out of this. And so the guitarist puts his hand out. I grab it and I repeat, Dan, Dan Kennedy in a tone that my little adrenal meth lab has now turned into a weird mix of loud and creepy. But it's a loud and creepy that's mixed with this slightly boisterous corporate confidence, like, that seems to be kind of confusing everybody, and I have to quickly think of a way to make sure there's no misunderstanding with all my bosses in the room, that I'm not delusional enough to think I'm upper management, and that Duran Duran shouldn't think so either. So for the bassist, when I reach out and grab his hand, I switch it up and I say, big fan. Big, big fan. <laughs> Jesus, somebody mace me. Have the compassion to put me down and get me out of this. The big fan line doesn't help reverse the situation at hand, since now they're kind of looking at each other like, wow, good thing this guy's a big fan. We're already off to a great start at this label. And I'm thinking, no, all I mean is I'm just an ordinary fan, one of millions of Duran Duran fans. Nobody's special. So, um... There's a fourth guy, and he's not reaching his hand out, so I make the effort since my adrenal glands have now apparently tightened into a series of twitches that tell my brain to shove my arm out in front of me at anyone in front. So in a slight variation of my last greeting, I tell him I'm a big fan of his. Hey, big fan, big fan of you. <laughs> Somebody, anyone, slams 60 cc's of clonopin and Valium into my shoulder. So I'm locked into staring at this guy's face and I'm trying to recognize him and I'm thinking, wait, which one is he? Okay, think about the Rio video from 82. They're all on a yacht and it's racing across the ocean. Okay, visualize it. The guy on the bow is Simon, I recognize him. And the other two guys, these guys here were standing in the middle section of the yacht, but who is this fourth guy? Was he maybe in the boat's galley below deck fixing lunch or something? I mean, it's not like I was into them enough to recognize them 20 years later, although, in fairness, I did just holler over and over again that I'm a big, big fan. Okay, this is not the time to figure it out. Let go of the guy's hand. It's been 20 seconds or something. Soon chairs are shuffled, and everyone that's not upper management is asked to leave, and the meeting gets underway, and I recede and fade, walking backward out of the room with a pleasant and vacant look frozen on my face convinced that the line between today's anxiety attack and tomorrow's stroke or unemployed cross-country spree of petty theft committed in a blackout is thinner than ever now that I'm working in an office full-time. On my way down the hall, a product manager walks out of the same meeting and he says, I can't believe I got to meet Simon Le Bon. I got a picture with him too. Did you see that? And I go, yeah. Um, who was the um, guy with the short black hair, the sort of heavy set guy sitting to Simon's left? Uh, I don't know. I think he's their road manager, actually. 
And all I can think is, well, whoever the hell he is, he knows he's got a big fan. Thanks a lot. And so uh, I'd like to uh, now introduce uh, Leah Tao. She's the executive and creative director of The Moth here in New York City. And uh, we're going to uh, <laughs> have a conversation. Okay. It's pretty natural for me. I usually like to mic my conversations. <laughs> All of you know that. As uh, you guys can probably guess from the chapters that Dan just read, your, your whole stint in the music business didn't work out that well. Mm, no. Would you agree? Yes. But <laughs> here's what I want to know. We've known each other for about eight years, right? And uh, for all that time, and as I understand it, as since you were a little kid, you've been a huge fan of rock and roll and punk rock in particular. Yes, yes, punk rock. Punk rock. You're, like kind of punk. An, you're kind of an intense kind of punk rock kind of guy. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you take this job... Would uh, uh, you say that just one more time for the podcast so it gets on there? Very intense. You're kind of an intense you're man, Dan. Very intense, yes. Um, but then you take this job right. Right. as the director of creative development and marketing at a major label. Mm -hmm. What I want to know is how did you negotiate that in your head? How did that conversation go down? Like, yeah, I can be that guy and also be that guy. Well, I kind of, my plan was I was going to be the guy uh, keeping it real. I was going to be the only guy in the <laughs> office building who was like true to himself. It was sort of my thing. Um, so that's how I did that deal. You know, I was like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to be like this mm, really intense cross between like a super successful normal man who has like um, an office job. And then, like, kind of Henry Rollins was like, <laughs> like, I told myself, like, that's who I'll be, you know. So then I was like, oh, yeah, let's take it, totally. And how did that work out for Not you? Not that no? way, no. Yeah. I, um... I gained like 20 pounds first off, which is like not good if you're trying to convince yourself you're kind of a badass because like you instantly just get like much like nicer and sort of panda bear shaped. And um, <laughs> but it was from an expense account. Like I had an expense account. It was like literally got this card, you know, this Amex and it was like anywhere you swipe it, free food. So I was like, you know, it's not like I grew up like totally like super poor in my like so-called college years where one usually attends college. But um, you know, it's not like I had a ton of food or a ton of money, so I was kind of going to town for like months. I was like, ah, oh, sweet sandwich, ah, absolutely nothing, free for me. Da -da 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 -da, eat it, you know, like who wouldn't like a salad with their sandwich and chicken on that and cheese on that? And so I got uh, sort of fatter, and then um, I bought clothes that I thought made me fit in because I really didn't want to get fired. Like I, I knew I was like, God, they can't find out I'm a complete loser, you know, like. I want to make this work. So uh, uh, I bought like all these sweaters from Saks Fifth Avenue and stuff. So instantly, I was just a, like a dad overnight, you know, pretty no, much. No, I didn't want like, to call you a sellout, but that's yeah. really what I was wondering. Or is that, or what were sellout. you telling your friends? <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, I remember when your first book came out, which is called uh, Loser Goes First, mm -hmm. and uh, you were interviewed and they said, how do you get a corner office like this when you're... Yeah, and, that and kind of backfired, really, right? Yeah. <laughs> I took that job right when I put out a book about being a loser called Loser Goes First, and then I was doing an interview in the office, yeah, and that sort of... 
sales weren't super hot. That was like sort of a little bit of a, yeah. I, I like your answer, moment. though. They said, how do you call yourself a loser when you have an office like this? And you said, no, you don't understand what's hard is to hold on to a job like this when you're really a loser, which yeah, I guess was. proved kind of prophetic, really, yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. But, uh, I guess, I guess <laughs> you know, I guess when we talked about doing this at the Apple Store, I kind of thought this would be, like, good for my ego, Leah. I'm sort of. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dan. I like all your questions. I like, like your mom at the beginning of Dan, the book. Dan, <laughs> it's not like you've lost a lot of weight since the job. <laughs> no, your first book was about being a loser. Now, you're still a loser, but you don't use that in the title. <laughs> Care to talk about your sexual dysfunctions? <laughs> you are very tan, though. You look good. You look good. Yeah, that's, I, uh, it's, from, it's legitimate. I just want to say that <laughs> because, because like the book's all about like, yeah, these guys with law degrees that have tans in the winter. And then I go do a gig in Australia. And then I went, I was in Central America for totally honorable reasons. And uh, I'm tan now. So, and it's New York and it's winter. So, woohoo. A little weird. But you did have rock and roll dreams starting out, right? I like this thing in the beginning of your book. Will you call your yeah. mom? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I called my mom, Lori. Lori Kennedy. Your mom's pretty hip, though, yeah? No, she's not <laughs> hip at all. She's a total square haircut. Um, she, she, we had a conversation, yeah, that was kind of weird. Like, I said, <laughs> I said, do you think I could have been a rock star if you guys would have encouraged my, um, my music a little bit more, you know, my, which, P.S., my music means, like, the two bands I was in half-assed for, like, a year and a half. Um, and she goes, I don't know what more we could have done. We got you a guitar, we bought you a drum set, and we paid for lessons with the guitar. What more could we have done, written songs for you? And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Like, um, no, good point. And then I was like, I should take this office job. She's probably. supportive but tough, your mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah tough love. And uh, eight years ago, when we first met, it was at the Moth. You, you told your very first story at the Moth. Yeah. And it was uh, kind of an early indication that maybe the music business was going to be a challenge for you. Uh, the story, <laughs> right? Took place in your early 20s. Oh, um, right. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought you were just talking about my general demeanor that holding well, a job would clearly be well, difficult. That, that, that too. But right. I didn't want to say that in front right. of all these nice people. I know. But, um, um, but you did kind of start out yeah. thinking you were going to be a rock star, right? Yeah, I went to Austin to try to be a singer-songwriter. Literally for like nine business days. Uh, and I, because I was in this like I was in this horrible band that got by on the fact that like we just all played super loud and no one could tell that we all sucked, you know that whole sort of alt shtick, and um, and then I had like a falling out with my friend and I was like I gotta go solo now, <laughs> and uh, it was like wow really so I was like yeah and um, I went down to Austin Texas on this tip that uh, I've said before that. Someone literally told me, oh, the grunge thing's going to explode out of Austin. <laughs> this was like, this is literally like eight weeks before Nirvana just like raced out of Seattle with Pearl Jam. Like the whole thing exploded up there. So I totally went the opposite direction. And then when I got down there, I had a gig right off the bat. I like signed up at this place called the Cactus Cafe because I kind of had like the moxie. I was like, hey, man, like you guys do gigs here because I'm looking for a show while I'm in town, you know? And they're like, oh, this guy kind of seems like he knows what he's doing or whatever. So they signed me up and they're like, you're going to open for this band on Tuesday. I'm like, sweet. And um, then I realized, like, I seriously have no songs. Like, I have no, and I, I'm going to have to, like, make it up when I get there. And I seriously, like, fancied myself 
brilliant enough to be like, yeah, you know, I have like this journal of stuff that's, that, that kind of pisses me off and, and different things, and I'll weave that in, and it'll be rad, you know? But it didn't go well, so it was, it was pretty tragic, to say the least. And is it and true <laughs> that it was like the night of after your first gig or something, you see the cover yeah, of Spin magazine? Yeah, I did see magazine. the cover of Spin. <laughs> it, said, it said Seattle music scene explodes. <laughs> On the way back to like the house I'm crashing at, and, uh, and I was out of money, and... But I, so I had to go back up to Northern California and get my record store job back that I totally left like in a, like, you guys can stay in this town if that's what you want to do. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to go be part of something, man. I'm living my life. And literally like 11 business days later, I had to come back and be like, hey, like, sorry about what I said or whatever. <laughs> like, what are you guys doing? You know, is Gary still working the clothes on Friday? If he wants to get rid of it, I'll take it. Like, <laughs> So weak and pathetic, but but commodifiable. Once I turned thirty-five, and now you get to go into studios to record uh, audiobooks. And yeah, I yeah, saw those pictures. That's pretty intense. Yeah, uh, those are really. F those are <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Drug-fueled sessions. <laughs> by the way, um, the audiobook scene's a little crazy, and I got mixed up in it for about. <sighs> three days over there at John Marshall Sound and um, heady time weird time but I'm alive um, and there is a there's a there's a PDF that documents uh, the whole experience the sort of madness the sort of metal years of making the audio book and um, I think iTunes will be attaching it after uh, tonight to the download so if you download the audio book you'll get you'll get the you know there's there's Pictures of the VIP suite that I demanded was built at the studio for my sessions. <laughs> and there's uh, chicks visiting me in it. And uh, uh, what else? Oh, they, you know who they talked to? They talked to the engineer who was convinced I was going to kill him because I did all this psycho. You'll see it. And there's a letter from rehab uh, from me. <laughs> I end up in rehab in Malibu at the end of the session. Free, mind you. So not a price on it. It'll... Yeah, make it worthwhile. But s seriously, <laughs> like, can we be serious for a moment? Uh, I know rehab's you don't like pretty it. serious, I know it's Leah. Hmm? Rehab in Malibu is pretty serious. <laughs> it's about as serious as it gets. No, we can be. Yes, serious. I'd love to be super Cause earnest because these people came here book. for that. It is. You know, deep down, you're an angry, angry man, aren't you, Yes, yeah. yes. And you have serious beefs with the music business. And you'd I'm like a what? to take it out now. I'm a Beeps. serious... You have serious mm. issues with the music. Oh, business. yes. I, you, I thought you called me a serious beast. <laughs> well, I was like, wish. wow. <laughs> when did you come up with that? Um, I have serious beefs with the music business. Do you? <laughs> um, should I say yes for the sake of... Uh, no. Not real. Not no. no, not super. I mean, like, I'm not a bitter guy. Like... You know, the book's really a love letter to music in a big way. Like, it's not an angry tell-all. It's a, it's a goofy, funny sort of love letter. You know, albeit the love letter you write drunk from a Motel 6, like, and regret ever having sent. But uh, <laughs> it is a love letter. You know, like, it, I don't have, I'm not bitter about the music business or anything. Got, like, pff, over 300 free sandwiches. <laughs> Like seriously close to 500 sandwiches for nothing, not a cent. So not exactly sweating it, Leah. 
I'm glad to hear it, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah. So, but tell us, I mean, why, why did you want to write this book? Was it like, okay, now I need another gig, and here I go, and uh, why not be a writer? Or? Well, part of it, yeah, part of it was definitely like going, well, like there was that first week of paying for your own lunch, and you're like, this blows. And then you're like, I need some cash. And then, um, but, I mean, honestly, like, I just felt like I had this front row seat, like, not to get all, like, an angel told me so, but, like, I kind of felt like it was a sign that I landed there. Like, I, I had this front row seat to this thing that's fading away. Like, it's not going to be around much longer. You know, the stuff that I saw, the stuff that's in this book, it's all stuff that I almost felt like this weird obligation to record, you know? Like they turned, you know, the hit factory where Stevie Wonder recorded, you know, songs in the key of life is condos now. You know, like there's a shift going on that, uh, that I was, I felt kind of obligated to record and put down, you know? Albeit with my... <laughs> you know, sad, mildly syndromic behavior as I sort of Forrest Gump my way through the corporate world. But, you know, that's in there. You know, sorry, America. But there is a sadness <laughs> about what's happened in the business, no? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. there's a lot of sadness I mean, in the book, ballad, too. <laughs> like, there is, seriously. Yeah, I've read that. Um, some reviews <laughs> say, like, this is also a sad story or something like that. So... Noted, what deep, was your sensitive. But of course you walked away from it all when you knew you were selling your soul. Yeah. Yeah. No. Or <laughs> no. Fired. <laughs> Laid off. But I do I like to say fired because it implies that I'm a little too badass to be contained. You're a little too intense. Yeah. The but laid off. with Not only laid off, but with like 999 other people. So, yeah. Pretty, pretty badass. Um, so, uh... Did you know we were going to do this? I, <laughs> I know, I didn't plan at all. I had no idea. Um, I've, oh, drinking. we're on stage, and there are people here. Okay, um, right do you want to uh, talk to some of the people? Do you guys have any questions about the book? Um, I don't know what questions... I go to book readings, and they say, like, oh, if anyone's got a question, please ask it. And I'm like, uh, I got a question, where's the door? You know, but... If you have a question, uh, you know. I have a quick question. How did the, going to the moth uh, sessions help you in developing stories and the book? Um, going, you know, doing gigs at the moth was literally the first time I realized that um, uh, everything that's gone terribly sort of wrong in my life uh, is something people would laugh about. Like, because, you know, like on that drive back from Austin, Texas, or the day you're like walking up Sixth Avenue going, okay, I guess my job's over. Huh, that's weird. I could go to the movies if I want, you know. Um, those moments are like, are for me, they were really depressing moments. I wasn't like laughing, driving my, you know, little used pickup truck all the way back up the West Coast and then going to Sundance Records and being like, hey, you guys, like... Sorry, I called you losers who were afraid to dream. Um, those were like really depressing moments for me, like really hard moments. I thought like, oh, my life's not, it's not going well. And all these other people have figured it out and they have houses and they're starting to have kids and all this stuff. And 
And uh, so those were tough moments. But doing gigs at the Moth was like, you know, the first time I ever said these things that went wrong and people were like, yeah, right on. And I was like, hmm, all right, cool. Made me feel better, you know. I was wondering what form you thought the music industry would eventually take, like what's going to be the role of the music industry in the future. Like where do you see it going or if you have any thoughts on that? Okay, here, here's the future of the music business. I've got it. No, um, I wish I did. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose the major labels will either innovate and become, you know, sort of like they all say, like, how do you compete with free? Because, like, the kids can get music for free. How do we compete with that, you know? And I, I've said before that it's interesting that coffee is free in every hotel that you stay in, but Howard Schultz from Starbucks is a billionaire because he sells it for $4 a cup. Like, you know, so I'm getting into that, trying to sell the coffee. No, um, but, you know, like, you, I guess you just innovate, right? You do something cool that, that people want, but that doesn't seem to be happening a lot there. And I, I go to, you know, people's websites, and it's happening. Radiohead's doing it. Trent Reznor's doing it. And that's where I hang out these days, record-wise. Um, so yeah, they weren't they weren't for a while because I the whole thing was Maybe like because you put the word loser in the title. Yeah, <laughs> well, the whole thing was like, "Hi, America, I'm a big loser." And then, like on the bio, it was like, "Director of Creative Development for Atlantic Records." And I'm like, <laughs> so people were like, "Oh yeah, I buy that. Sure, that's true." Um, but but yeah, the Moth events, I think, yeah, they made me realize like. You know, I can write this stuff down instead of just, you know, sort of saying it into a microphone at at these gigs. And and um, if I write down like 13 of them, that would be a book and then I'd have groceries, you know. So it was sort of a slow process of deduction like that for me. The moth had a ton to do with it, you know. Have you heard from anybody who you described in the book? Yeah, I like got Valerie. Yeah, I got I got an email from Valerie, which was a little awkward because um she was my boss and it's not like I ever walked up to her and went like, "Oh, you know, you're my boss and I have like this weird schoolboy crush on you that I can't figure out," you know. And so when the book right when it went to press, I was like, "Oh my god, Valerie's going to read this." Like that's going to be weird. Uh she sent me a great note that that you know, said she liked the book and liked the way it turned out and that I'm brilliant and untraditionally handsome. So it was nice to get. Um, having said, no, it's all been positive from like the people that used to work at the label and stuff. Send what about the label itself? Have you heard anything from that? Um, no, I was doing a radio interview in Toronto and the radio interview was going great and then all of a sudden the guy was like, so I happen to be friends with, you know, like the president of Atlantic Records. And I was like, oh, you know, and, and I thought like something weird might happen. But he was like, you know, I think the book is such a goofball book that way. Like, I, I don't I think it's kind of it's a comedy. So it's not like a really damning, you know, book. So so I think everyone's cool with it. But having said that i mean if i wind up like seriously like i'm in good health i want to report that widely and if i wind up dead like <laughs> in the next 20 days it's a shadowy figure from the record business 
There is that one chapter, though, where you actually try to tell them what the future is going to be like. For those of you who've read the book, where you kind of call a big meeting and you're like, this business is going to change and we better try to be on the forefront of that. Which, oh, and yeah, I actually well. empathize yeah. with what they go through because yeah, you well, called well. me like two weeks after they, the podcasting had been announced. And you were like, Leah, I think this would be a really good idea for the moth. Like, I think this would be... And I was like, Dan, are you kidding me? Like, we can't give this stuff away for free. Are you nuts, dude? And now, like five years later, we launched a podcast yesterday. But uh, so, you know, I I feel I, I felt a little like I was laughing at the executives who didn't get it, and I was like, "Ooch, ouch!" We kind of were there, but um, <laughs> yeah. even in the nonprofit business, we're like, "No, we're not giving it away." But um, how uh, you know? But I mean, they weren't too quick to catch on, right? No, I mean it didn't go over well. There's a scene in the book where I I, I present this idea. <laughs> It doesn't go over so hot. I still think it's a good idea. I mean, but, you know, you have to understand, and I didn't understand this in my sort of, like, oblong head, is that, um, you know, these guys aren't interested in, like, groundbreaking ideas that are going to exist on a slightly reduced margin or a massively reduced po profit margin, but increase their market share and popularity. Like, they don't want... Just, these guys have been... You know, the analogy is that they've been selling lemonade for $500 a cup for three decades, right? And someone has opened up a lemonade stand down the street and it's like a dollar a cup because like the consumer was like, dude, I just found out it's lemons and water and sugar. <laughs> and they're like, you know, so like if you and I had that lemonade stand, I would think we would go, well, mm, huh, weird. So they found out it's lemon, water, and sugar, and they're kind of making their own, and they're kind of getting it for a dollar from that guy. I think you and I would go, well, we had a sweet run, man. Like 500 bucks a cup for like 30 years. I'll go to Paris to my place there and think about it, you know? But um, uh, essentially like what they've done is gone we need to get them back to the $500 a cup stuff. You know, like, how do we do that? So you come into these meetings, I've dragged this analogy on so long, I actually think I'm talking about lemonade. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, you go into these meetings and you're like, here's what we can do. You know, we can, we can make this cooler kind of lemonade at like, say, $3 a cup. It's not a dollar a cup, it's not 500, but this will be really awesome and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, that's uh, sweet. What's his name and why is he here? You know. Did you use the lemonade analogy in the meeting? No, I just came up with that now <laughs> and it went over so smoothly that I'm going to keep using it. <laughs> it was like a, I have a 40-minute analogy that I'd like to <laughs> lay on you guys. But uh, this, uh, are there any other questions? Oh, yeah, we were doing questions. I have one. Uh, is that all right? Yeah, go yeah ahead, I mean, sure. there'll be more time for more questions. Yeah, if, uh, yeah. But you know, this whole theme of selling out is a big theme in the book, right? right I right. mean, there, you see some artists who sing very earnest songs about never selling out, right. and very earnest videos and very right. earnest melodies, and and then you know they're selling some product or other. And oh, hang on, they're taking a photo. Yeah. <laughs> Those uh, go like wildfire. Then. Tons of people come because they're like, that guy is off the hook at his readings. <laughs> well, actually, we have at the side table over here some of uh, some, uh, Oh, yeah, guys, please take uh, a photos free of promotional photo at the uh, merch. That's the free merch table. It's a great Yeah, there's all, there are also some free CDs. That like Dan's a, very first story from eight years ago is on that CD. Really? We decided to finally give stuff away for free. We yeah. thought it was groundbreaking that a book about the record business would have a free merch table. You can get free CDs and free photographs of uh, my hotel rooms. It's a little odd, but 
there's coffee from Cleveland, a photograph of my coffee in Cleveland. But do you have dryer. these surreal moments when you work in this industry where you're like, oh my God, nobody here seems to get the irony? Like, yeah, I am the yeah, guy. Yeah. There was there, like the, the moment where we had a big meeting about this new Jewel song about not selling out and staying true to yourself and, and following your heart. And the meeting was because they were licensing that song for the, an ad campaign for female razors, a lady like Schick razors. And uh, Lady Schick, is that what they call it? Intuition. So. I was definitely sitting there that whole time, sort of going, um, song is about not selling out. Gonna use it as a theme song for a razor. You know, like, you know, there are weird moments like that. But, but I, you know, I just acted like I totally got it. But so. then you were like, wait a minute, I'm the punk rocker with the big corner office. Yeah. 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 And then you were like, what? Oh, I snapped with the program. It's not like I ever had the guts to say any of this. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> totally not. It's not like I was the guy going, this is a fraud. I was like, no, I was, yeah. But I was like, oh, yeah, this will be a great song because it does feel like a razor, kind of. But Steve, how was are we still on for that 12 o'clock offline? Great. How was that decline of like, yeah, I'm going to be the guy who's keeping it real at Atlantic Records to the kind of like, you know what? <laughs> oh, it wasn't, no, even, no? it wasn't even was like it a, a long, slow, awkward decline. It was, a sell, it was a fast deal I made with myself. Like, you know, my girlfriend saw me leave the house one morning sort of like going, well, here I go to be awesome, you know? And then like literally within like three business days, I was like, yeah, um, so how do you like, uh, how do you like the sweater? Kind of nice, right? Like... It's just, I didn't even, it wasn't a struggle for me. Like, I, I, this isn't a book about, like, standing on the edges and, and, like, looking at people and sort of going, oh, it's so sad that it's wound up that way for you, you know? This is, like, within, like, three days, I was like, oh, my God, I am the poor kid in the sitcom script who's been adopted by the rich family. I can't screw this up, you know? Like, so I tried to fit in right off the bat. It's a sincere effort. I really did think it was my last shot at being normal, too. Like, you know, being a man who, you know, was, you know, you go to an office and come home to a loved one. That's what people do. And how long did it take after you were laid off to be like, uh, I'm the guy who's still out here kicking it <laughs> well, yeah. to make I the totally switch back? I totally uh, snapped back to that after I was fired. I was just like, Whatever, I'm out here to keep it real anyway. You know, I yeah. like that story you told me about meeting this guy in the kitchen. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that guy. Whatever. He had a ton of tattoos, yeah. And he had, like, insane piercings through his ears, like plumbing parts and lawn furniture and shit jammed into his ear. But And he had, like, and he had just bought this huge house, and he was telling me about how he was remodeling the kitchen. And he had this, like, he's like, yeah, it's a little weird. I had no idea we even got to do that. I was like, we get to have nice stuff and still be intense. But it was an interesting moment. Yes. Clearly a moment that doesn't translate, but interesting. <laughs> um, are there any other questions? Yeah, we'll take any other questions and we'll I thought wrap I it saw up somebody and you waving can your grab hand. all the free stuff you'd like. Good, good, perfect then. That means good, that we've done a great job. <laughs> I think we're done here, Leah. No okay. questions. We've satisfied them. Excellent. Thanks very All much right, for thank listening. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks for coming out. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store in New York's Soho District. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.